Welcome to the Speaks Exchange podcast with your host, Donald Taylor. As a renowned learning and development industry expert, as well as chairman of the Learning and Performance Institute, Donald sits down with experts from around the globe to talk business communication, learning technology, language, digital transformation, and engaging, upskilling, and reskilling your organization. This podcast is brought to you by Speaks, the first intelligent language learning platform for the digital workplace. Listen in and you might learn a thing or two. Welcome to this episode of the Speaks Exchange podcast with me, your host, Donald Taylor. With me today, we've got Guy Wilmshurst-Smith, Head of Professional Development and Training at Network Rail in the UK. Guy will explain what on earth Network Rail does. Guy, we ask everybody on the podcast the same question to begin with. What's your current role and what's your background? Can you explain something about where you've come from and what does Network Rail do? Bearing in mind, we've got an international audience. Certainly. I should first say um, I'm head of Network Rail training, I guess. It's the same thing in the sense (laughs) that I look after the training and development for uh, Network Rail. There's about 40,000 odd people in, in Network Rail. And Network Rail itself is responsible for the rail infrastructure, that is the tracks, the signalling, the electrical systems for Britain's railway system, Scotland, England and Wales. There's about 20,000 miles worth of track in just one of our railway stations, such as Waterloo, we'll pass through more people in a day than you see in Heathrow. So it's, it's, a, it's a big business and supporting us are many thousands of people in our supply chain where we work with those Mm. alongside our operating partners, the train operators, who are the people that run the trains and uh, drive those up and down the uh, the rails that we provide, if you like. So you're looking after the infrastructure, other people are running the trains, just to give us some idea of the scope of what you've you're in control of this is a very large operation how many people are in your department for want of a better word my training team i've got 606 people as of this morning as of this morning (laughs) yes Uh, i just know that because like in all organizations headcount is something that uh, drives a lot of your costs right and you Uh, keep an eye on it that's a that's a big responsibility you haven't always worked for network rail can you give us a quick quick resume of where you were beforehand oh yeah so before that i've been in network rail i guess about uh, nearly 10 years but before that i had 32 years uh, in the british army i was an engineer primarily throughout that time responsible for the type of things that military engineers do which is blow up bridges build (laughs) roads repair ports overhead lines so in areas like uh, when we invaded Iraq, I looked after making sure people could get into the country, restored the oil and gas networks, the overhead lines, the power systems, made sure that the people of Basra had water to drink, the hospitals were built, and so on. And then on to places like Afghanistan, where not only we built the logistic bases, but we went into the um, the terrain with the infantry and so on, supported them in the, the fight against the Taliban, but also worked with local communities to build schools, resurrect hospitals, and so on, and really help to start to rebuild the economy in the way that would hopefully produce a more prosperous society. That's fascinating. Big picture and big project stuff. And in many ways, of course, the ideal setup for what you're now doing at Network Rail. Guy, when it was possible for people to meet together, and it seems like a lifetime ago, we were at Learning Technologies Conference together in London. You spoke about analytics. You've got a great story to tell about that. Can you recap for us not 
not necessarily what you spoke about then because things have changed in the past few months. But what have you been doing at Network Rail with data? So our whole aim on, on data was to really transform the way in which we want the business to think about training. What we realized was that training has traditionally been thought of as, a, as an overhead, something that um, kind of had to be done, keep it to a minimum, do it so that you were compliant with various safety regimes, or that if you were in the developmental areas, perhaps you focused on your key talent to accelerate through your future leadership. But there was always a, a strong reluctance, particularly on the financiers, to, to limit the budget to the minimum. And what we realized was that, in fact, and I think everybody in leadership and development know, is that actually having more capable people <laughs> leads to a higher performing business. But actually, how do you prove that? Mm. And proving that is what we've set out to do. So at the very heart of our approach to analytics is to produce a provable link between training and business performance so that through a series of steps we can have an insight on the actions of the railway and what it means to our trained passengers to the training that we provide within the training division of the business. Overall it's as, as simple as that in theory. And it should be simple shouldn't it? It should be a simple matter that well of course if you train people effectively, then you're going to have people who are better at their jobs, more productive, and can meet all of the different criteria that you need for success in network rail or indeed anywhere. It should be simple. And yet, as you say, training is too often seen absolutely as just being a cost that needs to be kept down. You do the bare minimum that you can to get by. In conversation with you, Guy, I've always been very struck by how your approach to this has been driven by a very clear aim. Let's make sure we can show that link. But also that the process of getting there is about shifting so much in the organisation. That's what I'd like to really, really look at here. But before we jump into how you do it, can we just have some examples of when you are showing that your people are performing, the, the, the people you're training, and you show that they are performing, how do you know if they're doing a better job? What are the metrics that you run by and live and breathe in network rail? One of the, the great advantages of the, the connected railway network is that there's an awful lot of data. One of our goals here is not to be to create any new data, but to use the data that sits out there wisely. And what we've done, we've looked at key things that represent a good indicator of how well the service is running. So everybody would, if I just use this as an example, delay minutes that sit on the network. How late are trains arriving at the place they should be at a given time? And so what we have done is pull all the delay minute data across the whole of the network and then dig into precisely what has been the cause of that delay minute. And sometimes it's got absolutely nothing to do with, with training. It oh. could be uh, an asset just breaking and so on. But on more than half of the occasions, what we're finding is, is that there is a some cause in there where at some point the capability of a person has had a role in causing that delay. That's really interesting. I, if I was to guess, I wouldn't have guessed that it would be as high a proportion as that. I would have thought it'd be much more environmental, that there was a, a weather reason or a, a hardware reason. And, and yet behind those, you're saying, yes, it might superficially be a weather reason or a hardware reason, but behind those, there can be a performance cause that's causing the delay. Yes, and, and some of that is a, a direct cause. Yeah. But vastly, you know, more often is when 
it's an indirect cause so mm -hmm. that you've had a dewiment, for example, of the overhead line. Actually, the delay minutes hasn't been as a result of that wire being delayed because that might be an engineering issue that's related to the the tension of the wire the way in which the train connects to the wire and so on but actually when you look back through the cause of that dewarment you will see that it could have been related to the fact that the the teams who tension that wire didn't tension it correctly right and you go back then to explore uh, on that example of the dewiment when were those teams trained what were they trained in and what were the the training events that either did or didn't occur that led to that particular incident and you can go down in that much detail we, we can go down absolutely into that detail so what our, our data did was that having having d developed an idea that this incident's delay minutes was a result of a dewirement in this particular case we would then look to see the teams that impacted that piece of infrastructure over a the period of time that led up to that incident we would then look specifically at the competence of that team and when those teams received their training so we would look at the teams, the total level of competence they would have, but also the history behind their competence. And, and, and we would then compare that to various other areas of the infrastructure that are not having the same incidence numbers with the dewirements. Compare the two, that then gives us a benchmark against the level of competence that we would expect the teams dealing with that type of infrastructure to have. Just because I'm a bit of a geek in this area, and I, I, I want to be clear in my own mind, when you say level of competence, do you have a way of actually managing and tracking the competence of your employee? Yes, we do. I mean, and I would be surprised if most people don't have some form of way of, of managing their the competence of their folks. What we have is a, a you know a, a normal database, uh, Oracle in our case, mm -hmm. and which sets a level of competence for a set skills against set tasks for all the various tasks. And for our frontline railway maintenance folks, in fact, we measure about 1,200 specific levels of competence against tasks. Guy, I'm sorry to tell you that while I love this, and I think it's fantastic, that is a nirvana for an awful lot of organisations. They don't have that level of detail, of, either of understanding the skills or in, and competencies, or indeed of the ability to access and understand what's going on. So uh, that's a tremendous amount of work in the first place, surely, just to get to that level of understanding about what your people have got. I think th there is always um, a lot of work to achieve <laughs> any of this stuff, I think. Yes. It, is, it has taken a Herculean effort to focus on this area because we knew because we had to start a couple of years ago yes. and we knew the return on this effort we would not see for a number of years when your customers are knocking your door down <laughs> for stuff that needs to be delivered by yesterday so, this, so just to be clear this wasn't an, a system and a process that existed anyway it was in network rail this was something you put in place deliberately to understand the competence of your people correct in terms of the way in which we've linked performance data to the, our competence data. Right. That original competence data was existed as part of our understanding of any safety critical system. Right. So that you can have some level of assurance that you are compliant with your safety sure. case. So whilst for businesses that are have a 
that are less safety critical. We span from nuclear to power to oil and gas to aviation. You know, we'll all have things in common here that, uh, you know, manufacturing, we'll all have things in common where we need to understand that we are operating our systems in a safe and effective manner. And usually there's a requirement there to, to prove it so that you have a license to operate. Uh, either figuratively or, or in fact literally it's like i could talk about this all day competence but let's let's get back to the data side of it you have that data you're able to link that through to delay you do post instant follow-up and this is very different correct me if i'm wrong is this very different to the world that you inherited when you first arrived at network rail something like 10 years ago it, it's a a whole ocean of difference i think when we started when i when i started um uh, 10 years ago uh, I owned all the training budgets uh, and which I had to fight my corner <laughs> each year in to secure a sum of money to justify a level of competence within the company. And, and what I realized very quickly was that I wasn't a very good judge uh, to know how competent the business needed to be. The business is much more effective at understanding what it needs. What it can't do is necessarily determine what that means in training. Right. So over several people's dead bodies, um, <laughs> I managed to devolve the training budgets out to the business. That's and, very unusual. It's very unusual for someone to to sacrifice their the political power in organisation, which comes with having a budget. It was difficult to persuade people that that was necessary. And one of the challenges of it is that it is intrinsically on the face of it, an inefficient process. Because when you hand the budgets to other people, it means that you yourself have to know far more about the cost drivers in your own business, because you have to be able to understand what's costing you money, even in the process of giving advice. So in, internally in large organizations, you often you often reduce your costs by getting rid of all that internal business and sales, if you like. We had to build the overhead, if you like, of operating as a commercial business inside our own business. Right. And that, that, that came with a number of complete clangers when we got things wrong, because we really didn't understand what levels of our activity were costing. And that took a lot of persuasion for people to continue the journey with us on this. That's, uh, there are so many alleyways I want to go down on this conversation, one of which is, well, I mean, look, I've run businesses and I, I totally get where you're coming from, this idea of the the necessity of being on charge of, in charge of your costs. And also the fact that for most organisations, most L&D departments, that's simply, a, that's simply an area which they never go down. But let's, let's not go down there for the moment. You come in, the world of training as it was, was oceans away. We've moved to an area where you've got this, this raft of data that enables you to prove this connection between people's competence and the key business metrics that you're dealing with, the delay minutes and so on. And if I'm correct in saying this, I remember for our conversations, you give managers access to this data so people out there that are using your services can can see what you can see or at least some of it they can see all of it wow. absolutely all of it transparency complete transparency is key to the building of trust the, the, and there's two two components for that first of all it's sort of expanding our business because what we're finding is is that once they start to learn that you really understand a lot about what they're worried about, so we're as concerned about their business as they are, right. then, and we're manipulating the data to show what matters and what doesn't matter. Let's not say manipulating, that sounds like you're cheating. You're presenting the data, and slicing and dicing it. 
Correct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, that, but of course, they would be suspicious that you were manipulating it <laughs> by giving them complete access to it. And actually, in large parts of the organization, we've spent some money training up their people to access the system easily. Right. Because it takes some ability to do so. It reinforces that sense of trust that there's nothing hiding there. We're not being clever with the data in that sense, or too clever with the data. Yeah. We're just we're just using it. And and what we've found actually is that they're saying, well, I tell you what, if you could use that data to look at the training stuff, could you look at it at some of the other stuff about what we want to do in the future, about how we can help us run our business in in some other aspects? Wow. Um, um, because as clearly there's no point in us reinventing the wheel here if you've already got your head around and, and built the applications to use the data smartly. It's broadened the role that we have as a partner into our businesses. That's fascinating. I mean, we've talked about this idea of data conversations where you're speaking the language of the business, which is data, and you are, you are, you're couching everything in the conversations that you have around how people can be more effective in getting their trains to run well on the track. Again, this is a light, a notion, as you say, away from the, the regular traditional way of running a department, which is who do you need trained on what by when? So yeah. it's a delivery service. It's a big transition to go from one to the other. Personally, I believe that all learning and development departments of the future need to be operating like you are, with the transparency, with the huge amount of data, the data on the competencies and linking that through to the business data, the two being intrinsically coupled. When you made this transition, you got people on your team and the people in the organization to make the shift from seeing training in one way to seeing it in a different way. What were the biggest blockers on that journey? I would say, first of all, some of the mechanistic blockers. Right. Um, simply the challenge of getting the data released and having the same access to their data as they have i would say it wasn't it wasn't difficult in in if you like in pressing the buttons it was difficult in getting the permissions to be able to use that data. And technically, technically, you could put the pipes together and the data would flow, but somebody had to turn the tap. I had to get agreement. And yes. first of all, let's be honest, finding out who controls all this data in half the places is not Absolutely. that easy. And then getting the permission, because you know people say, what are you going to use this data for? <laughs> uh, uh, and where's the limits on it? And, and that's one of the things about the, the trust building. The trust you know, is, bit, right. is, is, uh, I, I keep going back to it, but it is so pivotal into it. It also means that when you're playing the use of the data back, uh, one of the easy things to do would be, for example, to, uh, as you often get with a lot of consultants, that they will use the wonderful example of where they've worked in X aerospace somewhere and proven their effectiveness on it. And, and we can do the same for you, if you like. Right. And using that comparison piece, we found that rather a disadvantage because that eroded trust slightly because they started to think you might be, you might be telling tales out of school here. So just, just if, if you're not in the UK, then there are a number of train operating services in, in, in Britain, right? And you might be dealing with, an, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Guy, but you might be dealing with an organisation that is in the north of England, and you don't want to have a conversation with them about what you've done in South Wales, because they might then say, well, if he's happy to talk to me about what's happened in South Wales, in two months' time, who is he going to share my data with? Yeah, Correct. And of course, you're not breaking any law there, because we're not actually sharing the data in that case. You'd be, you'd be sharing your observations, your insights. But in this case, what we found to be far richer in terms of the relationship building 
was to just spend a little bit more effort on taking what we had observed in other areas and looking for parallel incidences right. in our customer area and doing a bit of pre-work and spending time and money on that pre-work to build up examples of real-time data and their effect on performance and the link to competence for their own businesses. So you could uh, go, go to somewhere and say, look, I don't know, to make up the, the London the London and uh, East Berkshire Railway, which doesn't exist. You might go to them and say, we've looked at this and we, we, we've discovered these things looking at the data. Have you considered X, Y and Z without saying, by the way, we did that in Wales and it made a huge difference. But you could you can put the case to them and you put it well and clearly it demonstrates both your competence in understanding what's going on, but also demonstrates to them that there is a conversation to be had. So, the, so of these barriers you had, one barrier was just getting the data, getting permission to turn that tap, getting the data to flow so you had access to it. And as you say, dealing with that in a responsible way to build trust meant that the data kept flowing. And if you didn't, presumably it would have been turned off. Any other barriers in trying to get your new way of training in place? There is the barrier that everyone will face, which is this costs money and being able to secure the investment needed against yeah. what is really R&D at this stage. It's your, you can't point to anybody else who's, who's done all of this and have a proven track of benefits. And therefore, uh, that securing of investment for something that's a little bit speculative at the start is quite challenging. And you were talking about how these things can take years to show yeah. real benefit. You have to build up not just the data, not just the tools to examine it and analyze it, but also the skills internally to be able to do that. Yes. So you have to kind of build that up incrementally. And so what we've done is is focused on those areas where we think there is a very demonstrable benefit uh, of the link onto a very small section of people. Right. So uh, we started in a particular corner around Brighton <laughs> where we could see very clearly right. that there was a large competence gap in a, a team of 20 people. And we could see there was a very clear link between that competence gap and what was about 2,000 delay minutes uh, across a number of repeatable incidents. That's really interesting. I laugh, not, not because Brighton is intrinsically funny, although it's a particularly bad track, stretch of track, but just because it's so specific. One team, one area, and from that, you were able to prove the case and then presumably start building out further cases and growing your team on the way. Correct. It is really working hard on the acorn that eventually builds the oak tree that you're looking for. I love that. And... <laughs> presumably all the time having faith in yourself and, and being optimistic in front of your team when they might be saying, well, how are people going to be buying into this in the future? And you have to lead uh, at the same time. We all know all these things start with your discretionary effort and right. you're robbing everybody's piece of discretionary effort in order to get it going. Right. And, and that's the bit that takes the act of faith, if you like. Right. I think showing, even if sometimes you doubt it yourself, that you believe this is worth doing, pulls people along that journey with you. What about inside in your team? Where, where traditionally people working in learning development have always wanted to, well, not have always wanted to, but we've always measured things by, well, how many people did we train today? Um, and you know, I started as a face-to-face trainer myself. Was that an issue getting people to shift their perspective? I think sometimes you have to select the people that you start this journey with. Right. So I, I didn't really bother my face-to-face parts of the organisation with this early on. Right. To be honest, they are nose down delivering 
the money I need, frankly, that I can then start to pay for the rest of this stuff. And I don't want to disturb them on that. So I've got, we had a, a commercial partner uh, who helped uh, bring in the expertise on some of the data stuff because we lack the expertise, the technical expertise ourselves. Right. And, uh, and then people that understood the customer, some of my uh, customer facing teams, the, what we call the support managers who go around and business development team, I guess most people would call it that sit with the customer and discuss how much training they want. They were the people that I tended to work with most on this one, allowing the, my supply partner to do the technical work uh, and, it's only a year or so in that we started to involve our face-to-face teams. It's a journey. This is such a big journey. We have got years to go to fully maximize the benefit of data here. There's so much to do, but it's, to be honest, it's a bit easier now because we've now got hard evidence and it, it would be inconceivable to the business now that we would ever do it differently. Yes. And presumably, if you were to say to the business, well, we're going to go back to a system of putting a schedule in front of you of training courses, asking you to pick which course you want, they would be horrified. We would get very, it would be a very short conversation. <laughs> it's been a long journey. You've probably done a few things on the way, which in retrospect, you would do differently in, if you did it again. But if anybody else out there listening to this is thinking to themselves, I want to have those conversations with a business based around linking the competence of people to the performance of the business. I want to be able to shift the status and indeed the proven impact of learning and development in turn using data. What advice would you give them as to how they would, what they should do and what they should avoid on that journey? So I would I would start with posing the question to the customer in a way that addresses their concerns rather than your concerns. And this started with a conversation at a strategic level with one of the root managing directors that looks after a, you know, five billion pound business and saying, look, do you really know how competent you want your people to be or how competent they are? And he said, well, no. I said, well, I think we've got a way of helping you. And if you stay with us for the next few months, I can come back to you and show you that linkage and then do the homework on it. But only start that conversation when you have gone through and done your intelligence gathering that really can bring out that example of the Brighton solution that really, that, that can really prove that hard linkage. You've got to have found those little nuggets mm-hmm. at, so that you can bring the conversation to life mm-hmm. for senior leaders. And once you've got the buy-in from the bosses, you can then use that to start to open up the data feeds, start to bring teams on board, go to the finance panels to be credible in seeking in the investment level that you need. It all starts then, well, sorry, the second step is getting somebody bought into the idea of it. And the step before that is having something to show them when they, once they say yes. And I love this example. You've got 606 this morning, people on your team. You've got 20,000 miles of track and you are focusing on one particular subsection of track with 20 people on it. And you're looking at that and thinking, that's my point where I'm going to prove my case and start this whole thing working. It was even more narrow than that. It started on that piece of track with a single set of points, the bits that switch across the track. (laughs) One set of points. And you were able to look at that and think, I think, because you've done the intelligence gathering, I think if we look at that set of points, we can probably prove that we could, and then there's a ripple effect from that. Well, I guess to explain it, we were both able to prove that linkage, 
but we were also able to prove that that team in that area had never asked to be competent in that area over the previous few years. So there was a gap, tangible gap, between the way in which we had traditionally secured the need for training. Right. And what so they themselves were unable to pick up that link between performance. And why necessarily would they know? If they'd always done it that way, why would you know any different? And if you have a system that relies on people putting in bids, wanting to get training, then (laughs) yes, absolutely. That's a fascinating data point. I didn't didn't realise that. It's absolutely. And and that's how we, it's a surgical strike on a key area that gives you your point from there on in. You're a busy chap. (laughs) Thank you for making the time to have this conversation. I could literally keep talking about it. So there's so much more. I want to get out of here. We may come back in the future and ask you to do a Guy Wilmshurst Smith Revisited podcast. But let's wrap up with the questions that we always ask every guest. What do you wish you'd known when you started in learning development and what are you curious about right now? Well, I guess the, the first bit about what would I like to know now, I guess part of that is my transition from 32 years as a soldier. Yeah. And whilst I was in the army, I did actually head up one of the training and development teams within the army to train engineers but it was an organization where capability of people is paramount and it took me a while arriving into the civilian world to realize that the civilian world took the capability of their people differently they were less serious about it if i'm honest absolutely Um, the the uh, army the army is effectively a training organization but it's not fighting which hopefully is most of the time it's training correct and uh, and therefore it was like stepping back a bit in the level of knowledge about where the important linkages are. Mm. So, uh, and there's, there's still areas to, to go on that one, but uh, that piece of me recognizing the mental shift that was needed there was, was if I'd known more, I would have moved earlier in some of this stuff. That's interesting. Um, in terms of what I'm curious about, I remain intensely curious about the power of data. But um, we've talked about data. So the other area that is equally energizing me and I'm feeling evangelical about (laughs) is the effect of digitization. One of the things we've managed to secure at the moment is a a very large capital investment to digitize all our rail training assets. So uh, as you would imagine, across the railway, there's an awful lot of equipment on which people need to be trained. To replicate that across all of my training areas is is really quite expensive. And uh, it also tends to have a great impact on your total cost of training to the business because you require people to move from their workplace mm-hmm. to training yeah. uh, to play on that equipment by digitizing it more. And what I mean is not just like a smart VD, uh, a virtual reality type yeah. of model on it. This is having a digital model where people can actually use it, maintain it in a and carry out the full activity associated with that piece of infrastructure as though it was real. Wow. And we've now secured a, a, a 29 million pound program to, to completely digitize uh, all our training assets. That took us many years to, to justify, I can assure you. Oh. <laughs> um, but the benefits are, are really are bigger than we probably even thought. And we're now at that stage where we're about to start the first digital training of our signals, the people that operate the railway system. Previously, they've used hard simulators. Yeah. So we're now using digitized simulators to bring them up to the skill levels that we needed. But what I really want to, to know is, and I'm curious about, is how far do we progress mm. in the, the fidelity of our simulators before just 
enough fidelity is enough to create the realism needed so that people can step from your simulator directly into the live environment. Because, you know, in the past, all simulators were a bit clunky. Now we're getting to the point where they're almost real, right? But how far do you go? Because the, the greater level of fidelity, the more and more expensive it becomes to the point where they're almost more expensive than the real thing. And that's, that's the payoff, isn't it? Is it worth, for the last 10% of accuracy and faithful reproduction of the real world, how much more do you have to pay? And is it worth it? It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating question. Right, well, we're going to have to come back. We're going to have to come back and answer that question in a future podcast. But this has been a really fascinating talk. Thank you for making the time to, to have the chat. I know it's been useful for everybody listening. I've learned a lot, as I always do. Thank you so much. Guy Wilmser-Smith from Network.